This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we recently did a podcast on Queen Elizabeth I, and it got us thinking about her most important relationships while she was queen. And today we're going to focus on her relationship with her cousin and fellow queen, Mary Stuart possibly her greatest rival. And since we already talked about Elizabeth's early life, let's talk a little bit about Mary Stuart's. Unlike Elizabeth, she was born a queen. She was the child of King James V of Scotland and his French wife, Mary of Guise. But her father died six days after her birth, and this causes a little trouble for baby Mary. It does. Uh, her grandmother is the sister of Henry VIII, so he immediately makes an attempt to control her, but the regency instead goes to her mother. Henry keeps at it and pursues what's called the rough wooing between his young son and Mary, hoping to make an alliance there. Um, Mary's mother instead sends her off to France to be raised in the court of Henry II and Catherine de' Medici. And this was the nicest, most luxurious court in Europe at the time. So Mary was in good hands, and she had a lot of French relatives there. And again, unlike Elizabeth, she had a fairly happy childhood. It wasn't a so stable fractured. childhood, yeah. right? And Mary grows up to be a beautiful young lady. She's about five eleven, very tall, Just remarkably tall for the Renaissance. Yes, she's got red gold hair and ambered eyes. Yeah, Mary is really the perfect Renaissance princess when she finally marries Henry and Catherine's eldest son, Francis, in 1558. And they like each other. They've been raised pretty much as siblings, but it's the marriage probably isn't consummated. He's a few years younger than her, and he's very sickly. And she thinks of him fondly, but more in a brotherly sort of way than in a husbandly sort of way. Also in 1558, where the parallels start, Elizabeth I ascends to the throne. So Mary, through the Tudor line, is next in line, but Henry had an order of succession that had muddled things up a bit. Catholics actually would consider Mary the Queen of England already because uh, Elizabeth, they, they don't recognize Elizabeth's 
parents' marriage, that of Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. So to them, Elizabeth is a courtesan's bastard. Right. And in 1559, Francis becomes king, and Mary is his queen consort. And she begins putting on airs as far as this whole Queen of England things go, because she's safe, comfortable, and powerful in France. She has very powerful in-laws, and she can do what she wants with impunity for a while. She certainly doesn't try to disabuse anybody of the idea that she's the rightful Queen of England. Um, She and Francis actually start quartering their arms with that of England. So they're proclaiming themselves rulers of France, Scotland, and England, which is not something that's going to make Elizabeth very happy. No. And in a sense, of course, Mary, by Henry's order of succession, had been disinherited, or her line had been. So this does make sense. But the trouble between the two queens begins around 1560, when Mary refuses to sign the Treaty of Edinburgh. And the basic backstory on that, there's been an, a long alliance between France and Scotland, and it's getting less and less popular with the increasingly Protestant Scottish lords who are ready to see themselves freed of France. And England backs them, and uh, they put together this Treaty of Edinburgh. And obviously, Mary, as Queen Consort of France, as well as Queen of Scotland, can't... Uh, can't advocate breaking up this relationship. She embodies this relationship. Right. And she'd also have to then officially recognize Elizabeth as the Queen of England instead of herself. It's tantamount to renouncing her own claim to the English throne. But further muddling matters at the time, her husband, Francis, dies of an ear infection. So she's 18. She's dowager queen in France. And it is time for Mary to return home to Scotland, where, again, she hasn't been since she was a baby. So things start to get more personal around now. She asks Elizabeth for safe conduct um, crossing the channel should she be forced to land on English soil. Elizabeth gives her a pretty snappy answer, which she actually sails before she can even receive it. But there would be no safe conduct and no welcome for the Queen of Scots in her cousin's realm until she had fulfilled her obligations by ratifying the treaty, as she was in honor bound to do. And Mary was pretty much just sorry she'd ask. She was offended by this response. And the international community also wasn't thrilled with Elizabeth's behavior. They thought she's hassling her young, beautiful, newly widowed cousin, and it simply wasn't appropriate. Right. So Elizabeth comes back from that and tries to play nice and tells Mary that, in fact, they do have a sisterly friendship. And after all, she didn't send her navy after her. So it's <laughs> very benevolent. The, the essential fact here is that Mary, as a teen queen consort over in France, is one thing to Elizabeth. But Mary, Queen of Scots, back on the marriage market is another issue entirely. Right, because with Mary coming back to Scotland, Elizabeth now has a dynastic threat. There's also the possibility of religious conflict because Mary had told the Pope she intended to restore the Catholic faith to Scotland. And she's gone Protestant in her absence. And Elizabeth is a staunch Protestant as well. And she was also extremely pretty, extremely powerful, and a rival to all of Elizabeth's potential suitors. Elizabeth isn't the most eligible queen in Europe anymore, and that really bugs her. But on the other hand, she sees Mary as a potential compatriot. She is her cousin, after all, and she's a fellow female monarch, which is a, a very unique situation to be in. So Mary returns to Scotland in 1561, and 
Her life as a potential queen consort in this fancy French court has made it very difficult for her to know how to run things. She simply hasn't been raised that way, and she doesn't have the tools she needs to be yeah. as powerful as she needs to be. She she hasn't been raised and educated as a prince. She's been educated as a as a queen consort, and that's a, a very different different job. And most troublesome of all are these Scottish nobles. The Scottish nobles are really difficult to deal with. They're more interested in um, fluffing up their own feathers, kind of, and having private feuds. They're always feuding with each other than supporting the crown. And we have to consider, too, um, there's been a regency while the queen has been in a minority for 18 years. So they haven't had a strong ruler for um, a generation. But Mary does okay, at least at first, um, with her illegitimate half-brother, James, Earl of Moray, she comes to a sort of policy of religious tolerance. So at least in that respect, there's no more fighting. Or things are at somewhat of a peace as far as religion goes. She can practice her Catholic religion, but not pull a a Mary Tudor, for instance, and have everyone burned at the stake. And some people are happy to have her there because, again, they've had that regency for so long. They haven't had a monarch around in a long time, and she is beautiful and charming and pleasant to be around. So, you know, maybe she'll be good for Scotland after all. And when she gets back to Scotland, she immediately starts working on Elizabeth to be named Elizabeth's heir, of which, as we said earlier, um, by birth, she she would be. But she's sort of downgraded her ambitions at this point. She's not trying to be named she's Queen of England. She's not calling herself Queen of England no, anymore, quartering just, her arms. She just wants to be Elizabeth's heir. And Mary likes and dislikes Elizabeth as well. These aren't just complicated feelings on Elizabeth's part. Because on one hand, Elizabeth has been helping the Protestants cause trouble for Mary in Scotland. But friendly relationships would only help. They both realize it would benefit them to be friendly. Right. But Elizabeth can't name Mary her heir. And this is what's at least somewhat at the crux of their relationship, because that's one of the reasons Elizabeth never wanted to get married at all. She didn't want to name an heir in her lifetime because it would be a threat to her. And there's a really good quote about that. Yeah, she says, Think you that I could love my winding sheet when, as examples show, princes cannot even love their children that are to succeed them. And she goes on to say that she's been a witness to this uh, this desire to overthrow the current prince with um, whoever whoever the heir is, uh, something she's seen in her sister's lifetime. When Mary Tudor was queen, people were saying it's time for Elizabeth. Elizabeth should be queen instead. So she knows what it's like. And so her fear and reluctance in that context makes sense with her being friends with Mary. But they are quite cordial, at least for a time. And Mary is even a bit courtly. On seeing her cousin Elizabeth's portrait, she said she wished that one of them was a man so that their kingdoms could be united by marital alliances, which we thought was really interesting because, of course, that is how you played the game then. You married off eligible people to create these political alliances, but when you had these two... Two single queens. You can't... With a stalemate. Do what, that. What's going to happen? One of them is going to win, and we'll see which one a little bit later. <laughs> so they both really want to meet each other, though, and they come pretty close to it in 1562, but a religious war between the Catholics and Huguenots in France upsets the meeting, and they're 
really devastated by it. Mary apparently cried all day and was only consoled when somebody told her that Elizabeth was just as upset. So there's a real personal element to this relationship, too. They're curious about each other. But the thorn in their relationship, of course, is the fact that they both are two single queens. But Elizabeth has, of course, set herself up as the virgin queen, a reputation she's worked very hard to maintain, whereas Mary, on the other hand, temperamentally isn't suited to be single. She doesn't want to be. And she also has to think about the interests of Scotland. It is in her interest to get married. But, of course, any choice she makes, much like Elizabeth, is pretty much impossible. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth thinks that she'll be okay with Mary's choice as long as it's somebody agreeable to the English. Namely, not a Catholic prince from Spain, Austria, or France, which would be a very powerful alliance that Elizabeth does not want to happen. So instead, she offers up a man named Robert Dudley, and we'll talk about him more in another podcast in relationship to Elizabeth, but he was Elizabeth's great love. So So this is a weird match. Right, and it was also an insulting one to Mary because Dudley was of low birth, And he's tainted because he's implicated in the very mysterious death of his wife. So Mary is genuinely insulted by this idea of a match. He's kind of Elizabeth's reject. Elizabeth can't marry him herself at this point. And Dudley's not interested in this match either. So He doesn't want to move to Scotland and leave Elizabeth. No. So she's game playing a little bit. And Mary herself is trying to arrange something with Don Carlos, who is Philip II's heir, and it's good this doesn't work out because Don Carlos is not a great guy. Yeah, so Mary declines an invitation to meet with Elizabeth, which of course greatly offends Elizabeth. And um, eventually Mary's advisors uh, write to Elizabeth's advisor, my guys will call your guys, and tell her that Mary won't even consider marrying Dudley unless Elizabeth would settle the succession on her. And after that, Elizabeth's quiet. The game is over. Mary has has called her on it, basically. But at this point, another possible suitor enters the game, and his name is Lord Darnley. So Lord Darnley made a little shot at Mary when she was first widowed. His mother sent him to France to press his suit with with Mary. She wasn't interested at the time. Uh, But Elizabeth was very disturbed by this because Lord Darnley is also a Tudor claimant. He's a cousin of Mary's. Elizabeth doesn't want any consolidation of the Tudor claims. So when Darnley returns from France, she has him and his mother arrested. But by this time, they've patched things up. Elizabeth is okay with them again. She lets Darnley go to Scotland on family business, whatever that might be. Um, And it's kind of suspicious here because... She knows what Darnley's intention is regarding Mary. Not honorable, let's put it that way. Or at least honorable Honorable. that he wants to marry marry her. her. But he's not an honorable guy. There are several accounts of him being basically someone who's really nice on the outside. And once you get to know him, you realize just how bad he is. Yeah. So it's kind of suspicious that Elizabeth is sending him. She might know how this all plays out. Right, and be planning this as something that could possibly ruin ruin Mary. Mary. So three nights before Darnley arrives, spectral warriors are seen fighting in the streets of Edinburgh at midnight. And I think we can all agree that's a bad omen. (laughs) And soon enough... Mary welcomes him and soon enough falls in love with him. They're both young, they're both very attractive, and 
as Katie said earlier, being single does not suit Mary. And uh, they announced their engagement. And then I love this. So Elizabeth has let Darnley go to Scotland, knowing what might happen. But she completely plays dumb and is shocked by the engagement and arrests Darnley's mother. And Mary, quite, <laughs> quite understandably, is saying, hey, I thought you wanted me to marry an English guy. And I am. So they get married in July of 1565, and it is quickly revealed to Mary that she has made a very bad choice. Darnley is simply not a good guy. And it's not just her who decides to hate him. It's all of these Scottish lords. All those contentious lords do not like Darnley. And things get really bad by March 1566, so less than a year after the marriage uh, for in the Rizzio murder. Darnley and other lords plot to murder Mary's favorite in front of her. She's heavily pregnant by this point, and they're hoping that she'll be so shocked by seeing this man killed in front of her, you know, at her feet, essentially, that she'll be debilitated, and Darnley will act as maybe a regent or maybe a king. It's just completely delusional thinking because no one would have ever let that happen. Again, They hated him. So Mary is confined for a few days, and she is much brighter than her somewhat dim-witted husband, and she convinces him that the conspirators are going to go after him next. There's no way he's going to be a regent or a co-ruler or something. No. So she gets all of his conspirators' names out of him, and they end up escaping through servant quarters and ride 25 miles to safety. Once again, while she's heavily pregnant, um, the relations between Elizabeth and Mary actually improve after this, after, uh, obviously, Elizabeth was disappointed with Mary's choice of husband and things had gotten a little frosty there. But Elizabeth is so horrified that something like this would happen in front of a fellow sovereign queen, an anointed queen, um, that she warms up to Mary again. Right. And when Mary gives birth to her son James in June 1566, she names Elizabeth as the godmother. And in a a fun little story, Elizabeth sends a gold font for the baby, but not realizing that the baptism took place a few months after the birth. The font she sent was much too small. She's really embarrassed. For fat little baby James. Um, But the birth doesn't help Mary and Darnley reconcile. And she's starting to think, okay, I have a male heir. How can I get rid of this husband? She was really upset about the prospect of spending her days with him. But annulment is out of the question because that would mean that James is illegitimate and she can't do that. She needs an heir. So her options are pretty much divorce or arresting him for treason. But the question is answered for her in 1567. So on the night of February 9th, Mary is supposed to spend the night with Darnley, but she realizes at the last minute that she has a mask to attend and goes out. Meanwhile, Darnley's room is blown up, seriously, and he runs out into the night naked and is strangled to death. That's quite a story, and we're going to talk about it more later, because it's too good to pass up. No, that'll be a different podcast, but 
After his death, Mary doesn't conduct herself in the wisest manner. In fact, she marries the chief suspect, James Hepburn, who was the fourth Earl of Bothwell, just three months after the death and also after he abducted and ravished her, according to accounts. And that's always been unclear. Was it a willing abduction or did this guy just steal her for real? And he's married at the time, so he's granted a divorce to marry her. So... Again, things aren't looking so great as far as Mary's choices are going, but she may just have been very simple sad at that point. She's in ill health. She needs a strong man to help her manage Scotland. She's already married once badly, and she's, you know, got her heir and has to figure out how she's going to live the rest of her life. But Elizabeth is disgusted by Mary's actions, and um, she even compares them to her own relation with her true love Dudley and his wife's mysterious death and how she's conducted herself so properly after this, uh, contrasted with Mary running away with this guy. Elizabeth even wants little Prince James sent to England so she can rear him under her protection rather than him being with Mary and this strange new man. But Mary and Bothwell part ways on June 15, 1567. Uh, he's forced into exile and imprisonment by those lords who, you know, having just gotten rid of Darnley, they're not willing to to put up with Bothwell. Um, but Mary herself is imprisoned on a tiny island in the middle of a lock and deposed in favor of her one-year-old son, James. And Elizabeth is completely outraged. She was outraged by Mary's actions to begin with, but now she's even more outraged by what the Scottish lords have done by deposing Mary because Elizabeth has very strong viewpoints about again, appropriate behavior one, and about the monarchy and how An you treat queen. a sovereign. And yeah. this was simply inappropriate. And a lot of historians have suggested that if Elizabeth hadn't protested so much against their actions, then the Scottish lords would have executed Mary. With, without much to do at all. Um, and and that really is the crux of their relationship. This This is why Elizabeth hesitates over the Mary question for so long, because actively trying to depose or sentenced to death a fellow monarch sets a really dangerous precedent, and it's not something Elizabeth wants to get into. But in contrast, all these helpful things she's doing, at the same time, in March of 1568, Elizabeth is eyeing Mary's jewels, which of course have been put up for auction, and she outbids Catherine de' Medici for her pearls, and you'll see them in several state portraits. Yeah, so Keep it classy, Elizabeth. <laughs> um, Mary is briefly liberated the following year, and... Uh, tries to seek refuge in England with her cousin Elizabeth. She's probably thinking, hey, Elizabeth has been pretty nice and helpful lately. But this is a really bad move because Elizabeth uses as an excuse issues surrounding Darnley's murder and uh, holds Mary in a series of prisons for the next 18 years. And the English tribunal delivers the only verdict they can against Mary because there's nothing that can be proved But Elizabeth can't let her go either because Mary, at this point, has gotten interested again in claiming the English throne because she doesn't want the Scottish one back. And, I mean, really, would you? It's pretty understandable. And the tempo of her life has changed at this point. She's gone from being this romantic, adventurous figure in this whirlwind life. Always fleeing on horseback. Exactly. To spending 
20 years in prison practicing her religion and working on her embroidery. Yeah, she's uh, her embroidery is kind of an interesting side note. There have actually been books written solely about Mary's embroidery. She was really good at it, but she would use symbolism. I've, I really liked a rendering of a ginger cat playing with a mouse, which was a reference to the red-haired Elizabeth toying with poor little mouse Mary. But most of her time in prison is really sad, and her health suffers, her beauty diminishes, and she resolves to get out, first by pleading with Elizabeth, but also she is scheming from the very beginning. Elizabeth's chief advisor actually warns her, the Queen of Scots is and always shall be a dangerous person to your estate. And that is very much true. Mary has started plotting against Elizabeth almost as soon as she was in England. Um, and unfortunately, she's the number one hope for English Catholics. So basically, any rebellion you have that's trying to unseat Elizabeth is going to look to Mary as the woman to put on the throne in her stead. And one of the plots in 1570 was a big deal, the Rodolphi plot, which was your average run-of-the-mill Catholic <laughs> plot to assassinate Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. But after this particular event, Elizabeth never again considers restoring Mary, and she recognizes James VI as King of Scotland. But Mary's security gets tighter around 1584. She's been living as a queen imprisoned, but it it goes into major lockdown mode by this point. And there are also new laws against plotting treason in England by this point. And Elizabeth is afraid that she might have to kill Mary under them and goes to the now-grown James and asks if you and your mother would be willing to co-rule. And he's unwilling to do this. He's seeing a future for himself as um, not only King of Scotland, but King of England. And... Uh, Elizabeth tries to hide this betrayal from Mary. Which was kind, but the end finally happens in a plot that was sent through beer barrels. Mary is under this heavy security, but these beer barrels are like the one... one chink in the armor. But even then, even after yet another plot comes up where it's clear to Elizabeth that Mary is still conspiring against her, she wavers for months about doing anything about it. She even declares, I am not free, but a captive. She knows that their lives are entwined together forever. And finally, though, Mary is executed on February 8th, 1587. And she goes to her death in a very dignified manner. And when the fact of her death is broken to Elizabeth, she's almost hysterical. Yeah. She dresses in mourning, she cries, she rages against those who drove her to do this, so much so that her advisors get out of town because Worried they're afraid of what she'll do. Heads. Right, and she's also afraid, truly, deeply afraid, that God will punish her for what she's done. And she's uh, part of this is certainly personal. This was a hard personal decision for Elizabeth to make, but she's also worried that her international reputation will be shot, that she's put a Catholic martyr to death, not just a, a treasonous queen. Um, and some of this rage and these crying fits are to show the world that she's upset by this. So while the relationship between the thistle and the rose came to a bloody end, the interesting thing is that despite this long history they have with one another, they've never met. 
No, and Mary never stopped pleading for personal contact. She was a very charming woman, and she was sure that she could charm her cousin, too. And Elizabeth was interested at first in this, but became more and more distant. And she's she's afraid of the charm. She's afraid that Mary will enchant her, or worse, upstage her, be prettier and more impressive than the great Queen Elizabeth. She said at one point, There is something sublime in the words and bearing of the Queen of Scots that constrains even her enemies to speak well of her. And again, since they never met, they had the opportunity to make the other one larger than life in their minds, less, excuse me, more than human. Yeah. And it's funny, too, to consider their reputations. Elizabeth... Uh, always played up the masculinity of her strength, even though she was a very emotional woman. And Mary has always been seen as the emotional one, even though, honestly, she's more ruthless. She would have seen Elizabeth murdered because she was so desperate. Well, Elizabeth takes forever to sentence her to death. So between this battle of the rival queens, They both end up winning and losing in the end. Elizabeth makes James her heir, and every British monarch since then has been a descendant of Mary. But James, of course, was a Protestant heir, which was the cause dear to Elizabeth's heart. And the best conclusion to this story is that when James becomes king, he brings his mother's remains to Westminster Abbey and builds a magnificent marble tomb for the Lady Chapel with a Scottish lion at her feet, and the tomb lies just across the aisle from, you guessed it, that of Elizabeth. Together forever. So we will end with the words of Elizabeth, who wrote a sonnet about Mary, and said, The daughter of debate, that eke discord doth sow, shall reap no gain, where former rule hath taught still peace to grow. So, Katie, does that about sum it up? I think that does it for today. But if you'd like to learn more about the queens of old, check out our article, How Royalty Works, and look for our blogs on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands 
plans and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 